0: Are you converted? What does it mean to be converted? That is a crucial question, not only for your own soul, but for this church. A strong, healthy, Biblical church is a church in which the membership is comprised of people who have been soundly, biblically, thoroughly, deeply converted to Christ. And in order for that to be the case, we need to have, as a church, a sound, biblical, thorough, deep understanding of what true conversion is. And so my aim this morning is to ask and address one fundamental question namely what is conversion. And in order to answer that question we're going to look to Acts chapter 16 in which we actually find three distinct portraits of conversion each Of them wonderfully different in their own way, and yet each bearing three common and essential elements of all true conversion. So, our outline this morning is simple. First, we're going to examine three portraits of conversion from Acts 16 to give us a taste of how different conversion can look in the lives of different people in different circumstances. Then we're going to examine these three common and essential elements of every conversion that are present in every true conversion, no matter how different the outward circumstances of that conversion are. It is the presence of these three essential characteristics that will help you, that will help us to answer that question of the morning, are you converted? The first portrait that we find in Acts chapter 16 is that of Timothy, who provides for us an example of a childhood conversion. We meet Timothy in the first few verses of the chapter. So if you read with me, beginning in verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So when Paul's missionary journeys took him through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, he came across a, a young believer, a young Christian by the name of Timothy, who was probably in his late teens at the time. His mother was a Jewish Christian. His father was an unbelieving pagan Gentile. And this account in Acts does not tell us much about Timothy. It doesn't tell us much about his conversion to Christ. All it tells us is a little bit about his background, a little bit about his family, and that he he had a good reputation among the Christians there at Lystra and Iconium. But about 15 to 18 years later in Timothy's life, The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to him while he was an elder, a pastor in the church at Ephesus. And these two letters give us a good deal more background into Timothy's life and his religious and spiritual experience. These letters are known to us today as 1st and 2nd Timothy and they are preserved for us in the canon of Holy Scripture. And from these letters, known today as 1st and 2nd Timothy... We learn three very important facts about young Timothy, which are pertinent to our understanding of his conversion and of conversion in general. So I want to take you to three passages in 1 and 2 Timothy and have you look there with me. First, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. We learn that Timothy was a young man, in Paul's words, of sincere faith. Sincere, genuine faith. Paul writes, 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Paul was convinced that Timothy's faith was real. Genuine, sincere, lasting. His was not like the faith of so many that springs up quickly and then eventually withers and dies because it has no root. As I I survey the state of the evangelical church today, I find that there are really two types of people who were raised within the church and professed faith in Christ as children. There are those who, on the one hand, 15 years later, like This is 15 years later for Timothy. 15 years later, they're no longer to be found in the church. Their so-called faith withered away years ago when the love of the world overcame their initial love for Christ. And though they still may mark Christian on their census form or put it on their Facebook profile, their beliefs and their lifestyle demonstrate no love or commitment to Jesus Christ whatsoever. Such people do not have what Paul calls sincere faith. Which is to say, they do not have saving faith. The second group of people though, those who were raised in the church, and professed faith in Christ as a child, Fifteen years later, they're still here. They're still growing in their faith and their knowledge and their love for Christ. They're still pursuing Christ through the Word and through prayer and through gathering together with His saints. Such people do have a sincere faith because they have a faith that remains. A faith that perseveres. A faith that bears fruit. A faith that saves. Timothy was of the second sort. Are you? Second. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, so just two chapters later, we learn that Timothy was a young man with a growing trust in and knowledge of the Word of God. He was a young man with a growing trust in and knowledge of God. The Word of God. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Timothy's sincere faith had roots. It was grounded in the Word of God from childhood. He had been taught the sacred writings, presumably from his believing mother and believing grandmother. And Paul exhorts him to continue in them because they are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. True faith is a growing faith. That grows in its knowledge of and love for the Word of God, because the Word of God reveals the Jesus in whom we trust and whom we love. It's a word-based faith. And just as an aside this is for free this morning. Second Timothy 3:14 and 15 is my absolute foundational verse for why we do awana on Sunday nights. It matters. It matters you connect teachers with with young kids, even even when you feel like they're not getting it. Furthermore, they're not even really listening. Their, Their minds are everywhere but on the Word of God. It matters because there are Timothys in your classroom. There are Timothys in your Awana group. And those sacred writings which you are imparting to them. They are able to make them wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do not grow weary in doing good. Those seeds will bear fruit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. True faith is a growing faith. A deepening faith that knows and believes and grows in the truths of scripture. Third. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. We learn there that Timothy was baptized. Paul charges him in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I can't explain it this morning, it would take us too far afield, but I take that to be a reference to Timothy's baptism. That event in which in the the presence of many witnesses, he made the good confession. In the New Testament, that good confession in the presence of many witnesses takes place in or accompanies believer's baptism. I think that's what Paul's pointing him back to. Baptism is the visible event in which a new believer makes their public profession of faith. Having been then, Paul says... Okay? Take hold of that eternal life to which you were called. The calling comes first. It comes from God. It awakens within his heart. Faith and new life in Christ. Having been called to salvation and eternal life through faith in Jesus. He says, remember Timothy, when you publicly professed your faith through baptism. Now why I point that out to you is going to become clear at the end of the message. I just want you to hold on to it for a few minutes. He confessed his faith. So in Timothy, we find a portrait of a person converted in their childhood, nurtured from childhood in the sacred writings and in the fellowship of a local church. It likely was not a dramatic event. In fact, Timothy may have been unaware of when his conversion actually occurred, which may be why Paul points him back to the event of his confession, the event of his baptism, rather than to the event of his conversion as the decisive event, the decisive marker in his life. But he was raised by a godly mother. He was raised by a godly grandmother. And both of them imparted to his soul the imperishable seed of the Word, which bore fruit in due time in a sincere and saving faith in Jesus Christ that did not fade and did not falter with the passage of time. So perhaps Timothy reflects you. Perhaps you too were raised in a church by believing parents or a believing parent or under the influence of believing grandparents. Perhaps you too were converted to Christ at a very young age. And perhaps you can't remember the day or the hour or even the year in which you passed from death to life and from unbelief to faith. Perhaps you can't even remember a day when you didn't believe the gospel so saturated in the scriptures was your home and was your church perhaps you grew up believing that grass is green the sky is blue and Jesus Christ is your only Savior and Lord that's good that's what we want to nurture in our children here it is a fallacy to think that we we need them to go off and become prodigals in order for them to be truly converted what matters is not that you can remember the day or the year of your conversion. Remember, What matters is not that you can remember passing from death to life, from darkness to light. What matters is that you have been converted. The evidence of which is a lasting, persevering, sincere faith that is rooted and grounded in the word of God. So if you were converted as a child and your faith is sincere, it is growing, it is persevering, you should have every confidence that that childhood conversion was real and effective and that God will complete in you the good work which he began way back then. Second portrait we find in Acts 16 is that of Lydia, who provides for us a picture of what I'm going to call a quiet conversion. We had a few of those this week, didn't we, in Cuba? A quiet conversion. Everybody everybody wants tears. I want tears. It's it's exciting when you see the gospel just just break somebody in half and they're totally undone before the conviction of sin and, and the grace of the gospel. And so, it's okay to want that and desire that, but it's not necessary to prove or to validate that conversion actually took place. We come upon Lydia beginning in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we supposed that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord, I love this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the words spoken by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul's now in Philippi, a large city in Greece. And he came upon a group of women whom he met on the Sabbath day by the riverside who gathered to Pray. Lydia was what was known as a God-fearer, a Gentile convert to Old Covenant Judaism. So she believed in the God of Israel. She believed what was written in her Old Testament scriptures, but she'd not yet heard of the coming of the Messiah and of the gospel of Christ. She worshiped what she knew, but she did not yet know enough. Until one day, when Paul and his companions came down to the riverside where they were gathered for their Sabbath day worship, and he began telling them of this Jesus of Nazareth. And as Paul began to teach about Jesus... As the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Savior and King and fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. The one who was to come and to save God's people from their sins and to bring in the everlasting kingdom. God opened up Lydia's heart like a, like a rose opens to the sunlight and she believed on Jesus Christ. Through the gospel of Christ, Lydia was awakened to saving faith. She was born of the Spirit. And I don't get the sense. It may have been. It's just not in the text. I don't get the sense that it was a dramatically emotional, just wrecking ball moment of experience. It seems to me quiet. No fireworks. No overwhelming emotions. Lydia just went down to the riverside, not a believer in Christ, and she went back to her home that day, a follower of Jesus. And the text says that having been born again, heart opened, having believed in Jesus, she responded to the word that Paul had spoken to her. It says that she was baptized, new birth, belief, baptized. Put that on hold, we'll come back to it. So maybe your conversion mirrors that of Lydia. Maybe you weren't converted as a child, but as an adult, but you struggle sometimes because your conversion was not dramatic like some of the stories that you hear. For whatever reason, you began reading the Bible, or coming to church, or attending a Bible study that someone invited you to, and as you heard the message of Jesus, you found yourself believing it, rejoicing in it, hoping in it. It's not that prior to that time you were particularly disbelieving and you had rejected the message, you just hadn't heard it. You'd never seriously considered it. And you can't really say how it happened, you just... Believed. To you I say three things. Number one, do not worry if your conversion was not accompanied by months of existential angst, intense feelings, overwhelming emotion. Conversion needn't be accompanied by any of those things. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not if you believe the message of Jesus Christ, if you trust in His finished work as the only means of your justification and acceptance before God, if your hope of eternal life is all in Christ, in His blood, and in His righteousness, and not in your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own merit, you've been converted. Second, You need to realize how this happened. You did not make yourself a believer. God did. Just as he opened Lydia's heart to receive the word spoken by Paul, so he opened your heart to receive the message of the gospel. God opened her heart. God brought the scriptures to you. He opened your heart to believe them to receive them and so to him belongs all of the glory he did that not you third if you haven't yet you must be baptized especially in the case of these quiet conversions baptism becomes an essential component of your assurance For even though you may not be able to point back to an intense emotional experience a day, an hour, a time, an exact moment when you began to believe and hope in Christ, you can point back to the occasion of your baptism as a time when you publicly, willingly, joyfully renounced sin and committed to become a follower of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and King and God. That's a moment. Baptism is intended to be a moment you can point back to. A visible, real moment of saying, I'm done with sin, I'm following Jesus, and I just wanted all of you to know about it. You need to be baptized. You need that assurance. Your soul does. That's why God gave baptism as the sign of the new covenant. Signifying that you belong to Christ by faith and that you've received from him the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The third portrait that we find in Acts 16 is that of the Philippian jailer, who provides for us an example of a dramatic conversion, if ever there was one. His story is told in the remainder of Acts 16. So after the account of Lydia's conversion, we find that Paul and Silas were arrested in the Greek city of Philippi on charges of disturbing the peace and upsetting the status quo. Preach the gospel, you'll do that. Verse 20, they said of Paul and Silas, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Well, at the urging of the crowd, the chief magistrate of Philippi ordered that Paul and Silas be beaten with rods and thrown into prison under the guard of a certain jailer who threw them into an interior cell and locked up their feet in stocks. Well, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Just stop there for a second. Don't blow past that because it's familiar. Having been arrested, beaten, thrown into a prison from which they don't know if they'll ever get out and locked up in stocks around midnight of this horrendous day, they are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Well, this had an impact on the fellow prisoners as you might expect. The other prisoners were listening to their songs of praise and to their proclamation of the gospel. And then something extraordinary took place. As they prayed and as they sang, the ground began to rumble. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Well, when the jailer awoke to find the prison doors opened he resigned himself to suicide figuring that his life was over anyway as the penalty for losing one's prisoners was especially severe verse 27 but in an incredibly dramatic moment as he as he drew his sword in order to plunge it into himself and and end his life he heard paul call out with a loud voice do not harm yourself for we are all here Well, at this, the jailer called for lights and he rushed into the cell of Paul and Silas and trembling with fear, he fell down before them and he brought them out and he asked them the question of the ages. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What an interesting question. We're familiar with the saved language, so we know what he means, but just back up for a second. Saved from what? Nobody asked to be saved unless they feel themselves in real and imminent danger. But what did he fear? Surely he no longer feared death. You know, the magistrate coming to hold him to account for, for the prisoners were all there. They were all present and accounted for. He didn't, he didn't fear any longer what he had feared a few minutes before. So what was it that has him trembling in fear and crying out for salvation? I think he was afraid of the judgment of God. He was undoubtedly aware of the content of Paul's message. Either he heard what they had been proclaiming in the marketplace earlier that day, or he had been listening as they had been speaking and praying and and singing throughout the night. He heard the gospel from these ministers in chains. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that whenever Paul proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed that all men are sinners and under the wrath and the condemnation of a just and a holy God. He proclaimed that God has graciously provided one way of salvation from judgment and eternal damnation. He proclaimed that God has sent into the world His only begotten Son to save sinners by dying in their place as a substitute sacrifice for their sins. And He proclaimed that this Son of God is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified during Passover in Jerusalem some 20 years earlier, but who had been risen from the dead three days later. It was this message of judgment and salvation, of wrath and grace, combined with the earthquake and the demonstration of the power of God therein that caused him to tremble in fear. I think this is what prompted the question, what must I do to be saved? And here is their apostolic response. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the household, or then he, I'm sorry, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, if that's not dramatic, I don't know what is. A pagan. Gentile jailer with no apparent interest in God who is brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ by means of the singing and the testimony of two jailed Christians, a violent earthquake and a thwarted suicide attempt. That's the kind of testimony everybody wants. But as we've witnessed, it doesn't always happen that way. In fact, in my experience, it rarely happens that way. But if that's your story... God be praised. You should share it. It's exciting. It's encouraging to our faith. So rejoice. Share your story because it reveals the incredible lengths to which your God has gone to bring you to himself. Conversion happens in different ways in different people. For some it happens in their childhood as they're raised on the scriptures. Which are able to make them wise unto salvation. For some, it happens quietly, like as God opens our hearts like a rose opening up towards the light of the Word. And for some, it happens dramatically, where we are just slapped upside the head by the grace and power of God. Now, what's the point of viewing these three portraits? Why have we perused this gallery of conversion in Acts Chapter 16 of Timothy and Lydia and the Philippian jailer. The answer is that all three portraits are unique. They all display different ways in which God brought sinners to himself. In other words, they they teach us that it doesn't matter how you were converted. It matters that you are converted. But at the same time, these three portraits each contain three common and essential elements that all true conversion shares. And those three elements are these. Regeneration, faith, and baptism. Or if you like three-point literated Baptist sermons, in order to be converted, you must be born again, you must believe, and you must be baptized. First, we see that all three conversions were set in motion by the sovereign and gracious act of God known as regeneration or the new birth. In regeneration, God sovereignly and effectually calls a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins, shrouded in darkness and death. And he calls that person and awakens them into new life and faith in Jesus Christ. This new birth, this regeneration, is solely the act of God's sovereign and omnipotent grace. It's not something that we do. You don't cause yourself to be born again. John 1.13 makes that clear. We were born again, not of blood. Not of the will of man. Not of the will of flesh. But born of God. God does it. This new birth is a spiritual resurrection. It is an awakening of the soul. An opening of the eyes. And of the heart. So that we are enabled to see. And to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to embrace it. And so to be saved. Timothy was born again. 1 Timothy 6.12, when God called him to eternal life and to faith. The Philippian jailer was awakened from his unbelieving pagan stupor when the same power that shook the foundations of the jail shook the foundations of his soul and caused him to tremble in fear and cry out for salvation. But far and away, the clearest description of new birth in Acts 16 comes from Lydia. Acts 16, 14 says that while Lydia was listening to the word of the gospel proclaimed by Paul, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart, called her to faith, granted to her new life. And as a result of the new birth, as a result of her newly opened heart, as a result of this spiritual resurrection, this unblinding of the eyes, she believed and she was saved. So the first common element in all true conversion is an awakening, regeneration, new birth, which is a work begun by God's sovereign grace In which he calls sinners out of death and into life. And out of darkness and into light. And this new birth infallibly begins a process of transformation into your heart. So that everyone who is born again comes to faith. And their faith remains and perseveres. And they grow and they bear much fruit. And they continue on unto salvation. It is an unfailing, infallible work of God's sovereign and omnipotent grace. You must be born again. Second, we see that all three conversions center upon one major element, and that element is faith. True conversion is begun. It is initiated in regeneration. And true conversion is demonstrated in baptism. But at its core, true conversion consists of faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy had faith in Christ. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Lydia had faith in Christ. For in Acts 16.14, it says that she paid attention. She responded in the New American Standard to what was said by Paul. She believed the gospel that he had spoken to her. But the best place to see this saving faith demonstrated is in the portrait of the Philippian jailer. For when he asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They answer him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What does God require of us to be saved? What must we do to escape the judgment and the wrath of God which is coming upon us because of our sins? Notice what Paul and Silas did not say. They did not say, if, if you will turn over a new leaf and stop doing all the bad things you were doing and start doing good things, then God will save you. No, he does not say that because salvation is not by self-effort. They do not say, if you will keep the commandments of God, if you'll become good Jews like us, if you'll become good, church-going, moral, middle American Christians like, like us, then God will save you. No, that is not what they say because salvation is not based upon our own works of obedience and our own merit and our own righteousness. They did not say, if, if you will be baptized and start attending church with us, then God will save you. No, because salvation does not come through the sacraments or church attendance as essential as those things are. No, they drove straight to the heart of the matter. You want to know how to be saved? Let me tell you how to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Before all else, if you would escape the judgment of God which is coming upon you for your sins, you must rest all of your hope and all of your eternity and all of your sins and all of your shame upon Christ, believing that he is more than sufficient to take them away and to bring you to glory. That's how you'll be saved. Rest your hopes solely on the blood and the righteousness of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That needs to become your anthem. Salvation from the judgment and wrath of God comes only through faith in the blood and the righteousness of Of Christ. Only when we embrace. Christ as our only Savior. And trust in his gospel. As our only hope. Hoping in his blood. As our only atonement. And satisfaction for our sin. And and his righteousness. As the only means by which we may be. Justified and accepted in the sight of God. Only believers. Will be saved. You must believe. Finally, we see that all three conversions led to baptism. It is not coincidental. Timothy was baptized when he made his good confession in the presence of many witnesses, 1 Timothy 6.12. Lydia was baptized along with her whole household in Acts 16.15. The Philippian jailer was baptized along with his whole household. When they heard the word of the Lord spoken to them by Paul and Silas. Baptism is a sign. A visible demonstration of God's promise to save those who believe. In baptism we, we get, we receive a visible promise that our sins have been washed away through faith in the blood of Christ. Christ. In baptism, we receive a visible promise from Christ to us that just as Christ was buried and raised on the third day, so too have we, in union with Him, been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism also serves as a visible sign of your faith in Christ and your determination by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit to follow Him all the days of your life. In this way, baptism functions a lot like a wedding ring. It's the wedding ring of the new covenant. A wedding ring, this ring is the sign of my wife's covenant promise to me to love, honor and cherish me until death do us part. This ring symbolizes her covenant promises to me. And this ring symbolizes my promise of faithfulness to her. If you're married, you ought to wear a ring as a sign of your marriage covenant. And if you're baptized, or if you're a believer, rather, you ought to be baptized as a sign of your new covenant relationship with Christ. Listen to me very, very closely. No dozing off. No checking out. Put your phones away. Because what I'm about to say has been misunderstood before, and I have had people accuse me of teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. Is that what I'm saying? Well, it depends. It depends on your definition of salvation, words matter particularly when we're talking about theology where the difference between biblical truth and unbiblical error is often in a definition of a term. Is baptism necessary to be saved? Well, if by saved you mean born again, made a new creature in Christ, awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit out of spiritual death and into spiritual life, then my answer is an unequivocal no. Baptism has no part with new birth. You are not any more regenerated when you get into the baptistry than when you are when you come out of the baptistry. Water is not the means by which God causes us to be born again. New birth is a sovereign working of God's grace through the Spirit, through the Gospel, and is utterly independent of human will or action, John 1.13. Question number two. So, so are we clear on that? Do you have to be baptized in order to be born again? No. Okay. Question number two. If by saved you mean justified before God. Hey, do I need to be baptized in order to be justified and accepted in God's sight? Forgiven of my sin, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. My answer is again an unequivocal No. Justification is by faith alone, apart from any works, lest any man should boast. So, do, do you have to be baptized in order to be justified? No. You're two for two. You all are, you're good, you're good. But if by saved, you mean converted to christ such that you become his lifelong follower and disciple my answer and the answer of scripture is yes there's a multitude of biblical texts that i could pull from i'm just going to give you three number one when jesus gave his disciples the great commission he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe what I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. When Mark gave his version of the Great Commission, he has Jesus saying this, go into all creation, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, will be saved. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. So according to Jesus, how do you make disciples? You preach the gospel, you baptize those who believe, and you teach them the word of Christ. That's how you make disciples. What are disciples? Baptized believers. If you're not baptized, you're not a disciple. Not yet. When Peter preached to the thousands at Pentecost... Acts chapter 2, and many were cut to the heart, they cried out to Peter and to the apostles and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Evidently, according to Peter, one is converted and becomes a disciple of Jesus by hearing the gospel, being awakened by the Spirit, pierced the heart, that's a work of the Spirit, believing the message so that you cry out, what do we do, and repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's how you convert from unbelief to faith, from following yourself or some other religion to following Jesus. But sheer reason also demands that baptism is essential to becoming a follower of Christ. How can someone claim to follow Jesus if they won't obey the very first command that he gave? Jesus didn't seem to think that that was possible. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Luke 6, 46. If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. John 8, 31. So conversion understood not as Regeneration, not as justification, but as becoming a follower, turning and becoming a follower of Christ, includes both inward and outward elements because we are comprised of both an inward and an outward existence. Someone who is inwardly a believer and not outwardly a follower of Christ is a coward, and I wouldn't take their faith for anything. And someone who is outwardly a follower of Christ outwardly a believer, but doesn't have the inward experience, they're a hypocrite and a legalist. You need both. You must be born again. You must be awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit from death to life. You must believe. You must rest your hope of eternity and of righteousness before God solely on the blood and righteousness of Christ. And you must be baptized. Baptized. Publicly declaring yourself a follower of Jesus. For if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. That's the inward experience, right? And with the mouth he confesses and is saved. There's the outward. Inward and outward. That's how you become a follower of Jesus. The plain fact of Scripture is that you are not truly and fully converted until you have been baptized as a public declaration that you are now a follower of Christ. So I'm going to close with the question that I believe God would have me to ask you in light of this message. How about you? Are you converted in the thorough, sound, biblical, deep sense of the word? It doesn't matter how you are converted, whether as a child or quietly or bam, dramatically. It matters that you are converted, that you've been born again, that you believe, and that you've been baptized. So have you been converted?